And I'm not saying that people of different identities, different cultures can't connect with black students, but there's a certain connection and understanding that we that we have that transcends words and even transcends traditional school. It's just a connection that we have. Welcome to Black Educators Matter. This is more than a moment. It's a movement. Hey, it's Danielle. Welcome to Black Educators Matter. Our goal is to share the stories of 500 Black educators. We will celebrate the impact and achievements, learn from the lessons and challenges, and highlight the important roles that educators play in all of our lives. I'm excited to welcome today's guest to our show. As a do now, please tell me your name, your role in education, and answer the question, why do Black educators matter? Hi, my name is Demetrius Hurd. I am a music teacher, kindergarten through eighth grade music teacher on the south side of Chicago in CPS. I've been a music teacher for five years. I'm a kindergarten through 12th grade CPS graduate, so CPS born and bred. And Black educators matter because we are the representation that our students need to see. I think that right now we are in a perilous time where our students only see things that are glamorized, such as violence and guns and money and all these other things that they feel like this is the only way as a person of color, as a black person that I can achieve wealth in America is by going at it through this means. So when they see me and then we, when they see other black educators, they see something that they can attain. And they see a person who looks like them, who is an intellectual, but also has a personality, also can talk their language and understand their culture. So black educators matter more now than ever because, you know, we're living in a really, really dangerous time where our students, our children, our future can either go either way. They can go the, the road that pop culture or the media sort of guides them, or they can go in the direction that, you know, we as black educators have the power to steer them towards. So black educators matter more now more than ever. Now more than ever before, Mr. Hurd. So you said you're a CPS graduate. Where are you from? Well, I was born on the West Side. I went to Ryerson Elementary, which is no longer Ryerson, from to fourth grade. And then I moved to the South Side and attended Scott Joplin, which is still up and running, doing well. I think it's a level one school right now. Go Jaguars, Scott Joplin. Graduated from there and then went on to Hubbard High School, which is like 63rd Street in Pulaski. Graduated from there and, and then went on to SIUC. So, yeah, I'm from West Side, from the South Side. I currently teach and live in Bronzeville. So I'm starting to have, I really have that community connection with the South Side in particular. Shout out to Bronzeville. Shout out to Bronzeville on the South Side. Shout out to Bronzeville. (laughs) But as a Black man who grew up in the city of Chicago and has seen classrooms across the city of Chicago, we talk a lot and make a lot of jokes about South Side versus West Side in this city. Mm -hmm. Um, what were some of the differences you experienced as an elementary school student on the West side before you moved to the South side as a student? As a student? Well, it was very different. I can say that for sure. The West side, and I don't know if it's sort of the way that things are now, but in the West side, I felt I had to prove myself a a whole lot more physically on the West side. You know, things that were valued on the West side with toughness, grit, and, you know, having this, persona, if you will. You know, I, I really cared about how I dressed and, you know, all those things. But when I moved to the South Side, I noticed that the students that were the most popular students in school were the kids who were the smartest. 
those were the kids who, you know, when I graduated from eighth grade, if you look at the top 10, because we celebrated the top 10 students, then the t- out of the top 10 students, like the valedictorian, the salutatorian, all the way down were the kids who, you know, had the most, if you will, social standing in, in the school building. So, I mean, you know, it was, I took being intellectual more seriously when I moved to the South Side. And I knew I was always an intellectual. And I think that now I kind of have the best of both worlds. I'm kind of, and my students can sort of relate because I can tell them like, hey, I got that West Side in me, but I'm still, you know, I can still speak, you know, intellectually, but at the same time, I still kind of got that West Side in me. <laughs> Come on, get somebody that can do both and code switch. Because now let's talk about Hubbard, because that's a totally yes. different demographic. Totally different, totally different. And Scott Joplin, <clears throat> and I was blessed to have black male, black educators from top to bottom of Scott Joplin. When I say we were 100% black, I mean, we were 100% black. And I mean, and it was an empowering culture because it was very Afrocentric. Dr. Murray, our principal at the time, was really, really, really rooted in teaching black kids how, you know, their black identity. So no matter where they went to high school or college or beyond, they still carried around their identity. They still understood who they were, who they were as it relates to the rest of the world. So going into Hubbard and to such a diverse multicultural setting, you know, I, I thrived. And, you know, that was the, honestly, that's where I feel like God literally took me and plucked me and placed me where he needed me to go in order for me to be on the trajectory of his purpose and his plan for my life. So I'm like Hubbard, I'm grateful. And I, and I thank God every day for Hubbard. Because Hubbard saved me. And I say that because it opened my eyes to the world. And I say that literally because I not only got to, you know, have friends of different ethnicities and cultures and religions and, and all of that, but I also got to see the world. Mr. Wilson, who, you know, even if you ask me about teachers who changed my life and, and black teachers who I had who, you know, sort of shaped me into the person I am, he's that person. Mr. Wilson, my, my choir teacher, astute African-American intellectual musician performer connector was able to do all those things and he built a a music program there that was second to none i got to have concert tours in france as a 16 year old kid from the from the south side and england going up and down the uk italy and just opened my eyes like now i'm a world traveler because of that and mr wilson said he said my job is to get you off the block so that you can go out and do great and marvelous things and that's exactly what this man did. He took me off of the block, and now my eyes have, have seen something that my mission right now is to allow my children, my, my students, to see the world the way God has blessed me to see the world from the same position in the same street that they come from. Come on, Mr. Wilson. So, Mr. Wilson, you took all of that experience and then took your talents down to Southern Carbondale. Yep. Now you in a different yep. part of Illinois with a different demographic. Absolutely. What was Absolutely. that like for you? And when did you decide that you wanted to become an educator? Was it while you were at Southern? Did you go in declared? Mm-hmm. So I went into Southern as foolishly, if you will, as a business, whether it was like finance or something. And I had no idea why I wanted to do it, be a business major. But I quickly, like really quickly, I mean, talking like first semester, realized that that was not my call and mission. You know, before the first semester was up, I had already changed to music as a major. So I, I switched to music, vocal performance. So I didn't go the music ed route. And I know to this day, I, I just, 
I, performing was such a thing for me then because Mr. Wilson just, you know, that's all I did was the stage all through high school. So I was like, I want to be a performer or at least be in some capacity of performance. So I did the performance route, which was great. And I, you know, it was a very valuable experience, but I didn't take root as an educator. I didn't see myself as an educator right then and there. I, I graduated and started to do some sales and just had a job, you know, just to make some money. You know, you're right out of college. You want to make some money, get you an apartment, get you a car and all those things. So I was able to do that, but it wasn't until I was 28 that I decided, hey, this is the time to, you know, go back to school, get a master's degree, do, do what you need to do to become an educator. So I got to sort of experience life, if you will, and get grounded and rooted in who I was before I took that giant leap, that important leap to become an educator. So what was your master's degree? My master's degree was in, well, the first master's degree I got was in education at DePaul. And I was doing that while I was working sales, you know, just sort of something to do. And then I found AUSL. They have a residency program that allowed me to become a music teacher without having to, you know, go back to get an undergrad or anything like that. So they allowed me to get a master's degree in teaching and get a music K through eight endorsement, which was which was perfect because they discontinued that particular endorsement the following year. So I was a part of like the very last sort of cohort of people who were able to get a music ed endorsement through that residence. So it was brilliant. I got to study under a mentor teacher for a year, got a master's degree in a year. And before you knew it, I was, you know, doing, doing what I love to do. Shout out to the alternative teacher training programs and the opportunities Absolutely. that they provide to career changers. Absolutely. So speaking of career changes and now you bringing your full self with all of your experience back into the classroom as an educator, do you find that you have a shared sense of identity between you and your students? And if so, how did you recognize that, especially as a black man? Sure. Well, I mean, to be quite honest, being a black male teacher is like being a unicorn. You know, it, you know, we, we go into a lot of school buildings particularly on the south side and the west side, and we see the only black male of staff members usually a security or sometimes a dean or not usually in a classroom setting. So coming in as an educator, a classroom educator, being a black male was just, it was profound because it was something that, you know, I, I knew that I wanted to do, but I had no idea that, you know, I would be at such a minority coming from the background that I came from, like as Scott Joplin and having Mr. Wilson and all of that. So I immediately connected with the kids. And my dad was an educator. My granddad was like one of the longest serving local school council members in Scott Joplin School history. You know, so I, I come from a line of, of men who had that stature and that presence, you know, that kids looked up to. So they had this thing, but they would just kind of just stand in front of kids and they didn't have to say a word. And then kids would say, oh, let me, let me, I, I need to be paying attention to what he got to say. So when I found that I also had that type of presence, uh, it, it clicked that they're not just looking, you know, for a teacher. They're looking for somebody who, who can talk to them. They're looking for somebody who can connect with them on a different level. So when I realized that that's what they were looking for, and when they saw that in me, not only did I get their respect, I continued and I sustained their respect. I'm just truly blessed to, to know that a student, my students truly look to me as someone that they can achieve and strive to be like. They tell me that, they show me that and just how they respond to me. And, you know, we connect on a different level. And I'm not saying that people of different identities, different cultures can't connect with black students, but there's a certain connection and understanding that we that we have 
that transcends words and even transcends traditional school. It's just the connection that we have that allows education and school to happen in a different way. So let me ask you this question. What is the state of education in Black America and how did we get here? Well, I would say that we're, it's like a microcosm of what's going on in America as a whole, in American education as a whole. There's a few who have a lot and then there's a lot who have hardly any. And the thing that's concerning about that is that, you know, you look at a neighborhood like Bronzeville, a rapidly changing neighborhood, but the neighborhood schools are suffering because there's an influx of high socioeconomic families coming in, but are they sending their children to the neighborhood school? Not at all. They're choosing to send their students to the magnet or the selective enrollment of the type of school that, you know, is going to produce, get them the type of results that, quite frankly, they deserve, like all parents deserve, right? So that, to me, is, is the issue. Should parents be able to choose where their children go to school? Absolutely. I think so. But choice is doing now is sort of at the cost of the neighborhood school and at the, at the cost of the neighborhood student. So how did we get here? I think we just got here because we're just in a position right now where everyone's kind of out for self. You know, everybody's like, hey, you know, I got to do what's best for me. I got to do what's best for my family and my children. And there's nothing wrong with that. But what capitalism does is sort of erodes the sense of community. And right now we are, we are at a detriment, we're at a deficiency in terms of how we think of community. So I think that's where we are right now and that's how we got here. Can we get out of that? Absolutely. We just, it just, it's just going to take a different mentality, a different mindset that focuses more on the community, investing in the community rather than investing in, you know, your own self. Because if we invest in the community, you're automatically investing in yourself. I want to explore that a little bit, especially through your lens as somebody who's had experiences living across the city of Chicago. You mentioned that your elementary school on the west side no longer exists, but your elementary school on the south side is still thriving, and your father and grandfather were active in that community as well. Absolutely. So when we think about gentrification and rapidly evolving neighborhoods, how does that impact the school stability? Because it seems like if more resources are coming to your neighborhood, so you're getting more expensive housing and you're getting grocery stores, that the school resources should also increase. That's what it seems like. But as we think about the west side of Chicago and how it has changed over the past 20 years, if we think about Bronzeville and how it is changing, what is the impact of gentrification on a neighborhood and how does that influence schools? Hmm, that's deep because there are several different examples of how that has happened in Chicago. Um, and I can think of one example of like where Whitney Young High School is located, sort of that area. How Whitney Young High School. What neighborhood is that? Because to me, you know I, that's the west side to me. It's the west side, right? It's right by United Center. It's kind of like Jackson. You know, like that's to me, I think, there's, I think west side. And you think of how Whitney Young was, you know, that school when we were growing up, that sort of school that you attained. If I go to Whitney Young, it's a neighborhood. I mean, it's not a neighborhood school. It's a max school. You know, children from different areas can go to Whitney Young. But then when that era, when gentrification started to happen, what happened is people started to move to that neighborhood and they started to say, hey, wait a minute. This is my neighborhood school. My kids should be able, and these are higher socioeconomic families who think that their child deserves and is entitled 
to that brand and that level of education. So what happened with Whitney Young is, yeah, now the local school council, things started to shift. Now, Whitney Young still may be a magnet school, but Whitney Young is kind of a low-key neighborhood school because those people around that neighborhood fought to make sure that their students were going to go to a, a quality school. You look at Bronzeville, unfortunately, there are no schools that have been established that have, you know, set the bar that high. So when people move to Bronzeville, they see, you know, a part of Chicago that was sort of uncharted that I can get a quality piece of land, and, you know, I don't really necessarily have to worry about where my kids go to school because I can put them anywhere. So I think that, you know, Bronzeville is just in, the, in a position where it could go either way. It really could go either way. And what is the solution? What is the remedy for it? Obviously, outreach and, and getting, getting community members and families to understand the, the quality of schools that we do have in Brownsville, because I think that I teach at a pretty quality school. You know, we have a good arts program. We have dedicated teachers. We have a staff that shows up every day. But <laughs> right across the street, there's a $500,000 house that children, they send their children to, Skinner. You know, Skinner so. West, Skinner North, Skinner West. one of them Skinners. Yep, it's one of them. So, you know, it's just, you know, I don't fault them. I don't blame them. They have every right to do that. But that is the, I think that's the issue right now being that we're facing here in a, in a rapidly changing, gentrified neighborhood like Brownsville. This is just one of many stories, and we want to keep the conversation going. Follow us on Instagram at blackeducators.matter. Visit us online at www.blackeducatorsmatter.org. Help build the movement by joining our Patreon. Now, let's get back to our Project 500 podcast. The, it, it, it's fascinating to see and to watch what will happen. We had those school mm-hmm. closures some years ago. We had some schools yeah. reopen. We had, it, it, it's just really fascinating to see, and we won't really see the impact for another, like, five years. Yeah, right. You know, like, right. what yeah. was the impact of the decision that was made about yeah. this school and how it affects the families and the Absolutely. communities in the area? So would you say schools are designed for children of color? Thinking of your own experience as a black boy in schools and now you as a black male educator, are schools designed for children of color? Well, well, to answer that question, you got to think about the numbers. Like I said, I'm a unicorn. I'm a part of the 1%. There's 1% of, of teachers in Chicago public schools that are black men, 2% in the entire country. Now, if we just focus on Chicago public schools alone, 34 to 36% of the students are African-American. Half of those are boys. So you put that and you put that with 515 schools, that equates to less than one half of a black male educator for each school in CPS. So were schools designed for children of color, particularly for black boys? Absolutely not. Because you know, we look at the most successful school models and they involve things that aren't necessarily social justice. They want discipline. They want standing in line. They want, they want compliance. They want all these things that, to me, equals prison. So you put that into a system that doesn't have representation or students don't have representation, then you tell me who it's designed for when 50% of the educators in the school system don't look like me. 
<sighs> Goodness. Why are performing arts programs vital for all students? Why do all students deserve performing arts programs? You wouldn't believe how many of my students, before I became a teacher, before they had me, whose parents never attended a recital, a concert, an assembly, or any type of showcase of their learning. And what performing arts does, it provides the families, it provides the community, it provides all the stakeholders at one time the opportunity to invest in the children's learning at once. Math can't do that. Reading can't do that. No other subject matter can do that other than the performing arts. So until we understand the importance and the power of the performing arts as it relates to student achievement, student growth, student confidence, community, all of the different factors of that you talk about the framework for a successful school community, performing arts hits all of those, and it can hit it almost simultaneously at once. So why is performing arts important for all students? Because students in higher socioeconomic, higher SES backgrounds, they understand, their families understand the importance of that, which is why they pay for it. And they're willing to invest lots of resources into getting their children those experiences. And we, in, in, in our poorest communities, we don't understand the, the importance of even providing it to them for free. So... We'll just leave it at that. <laughs> Why did that leave, though? Like, well, not 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 considering COVID. We understand why mm-hmm. we can't have these things now. But sure. when we look back at schools and the offerings, music programs, art programs, dance programs, if they exist, who has access to them during the day versus an extracurricular activity. But even yep. if those exist, so many schools don't have actual auditoriums. They don't necessarily have assemblies because they don't have a space where they can get all of the students into the space at the same time, plus the teachers. Also, is there time built into your schedule to practice for assemblies? Is there time built in for dancing and singing and joy and to do that like in concert together? Does the current model even support performing arts? Well, from a general ed teacher standpoint, absolutely not. There are too many metrics to hit. There too, there's too much data to collect. And there's not enough time in the day, frankly, um, which is why we need teachers who are, or who are specifically equipped to teach those subjects. Now, of course, those types of teachers, they, they tend to flock to the, the better schools. They tend to flock to the schools who, whose community embrace those types of programs. Um, so that's going to be a, a, a sort of, you know, unfair advantage to those types of communities. So until we invest those types of teachers in neighborhoods that need them the most, you're going to continue to have the same result. And teachers who are reading teachers, who are math teachers, who are science teachers, there's, there's absolutely zero time. Unless you have an administration that is absolutely willing to allow you to be innovative in a way that brings the curriculum to life. In, in a way that allows students to showcase their learning rather than demonstrate their learning in a, in a sort of routine, metis, um, um, methodical kind of way. Give them an opportunity to sort of create using the content rather than just regurgitate the content. Mm-hmm. What happened to the talent show? Why did those... What happened to the talent show? That's the biggest thing at Fuller. I mean, that's a big deal. That's a marquee event at Fuller. 
I mean, students students dream about the talent show. Students invest time into the talent show. Students sacrifice their recess time to get with their groups to work on their performance for the talent show. Students evaluate themselves. Students want to take video of themselves practicing so that they can use the rubric to evaluate their performance as a group collaboratively on how they can improve their performance. Students, when I'm just talking about my students because this is the time and the energy that I've, I've invested in to them and, and understanding the process. So it's not really about the result. The result is going to happen, but they're appreciating the process of the result. And that's taking something as menial and something as small and and a lot of times something as common as a talent show and, and, and turning it into a learning experience that students will take with them for the rest of their lives. Let's talk about impactful moments that you've had okay. as an educator. What are the Twilight Awards? So the Twilight Awards is an invention of Chance the Rapper. About a year ago, he thought, how cool will it be, would it be to treat teachers like celebrities? And, you know, he just didn't really have, and, you know, he wanted to do it big. You know, he's a big thinker. He's a South Side guy. You know, he, he likes to do things big. So he, you know, he sort of sat on the thought. It was a seed that was planted. And then he finally found an organization that was willing to provide uh, or make that come to life. And Box Stops for Education was that organization. So a few months ago, I don't know how I was even nominated, to be honest. They started to, I guess, ask or get applications from different school leaders across the country. So they accept or they, they awarded four teachers in Chicago and CPS and six other teachers around the country with the Twilight Awards. And um, Box Tops for Education was great. And Chance was great. It was a full experience. It was a great night. I mean, he wanted it to be live, like an actual award show, like Grammys or, or Oscars. But we did it virtually. I mean, it was just this great chance had on a tuck sitting on his couch being reported by his wife. So, you know, it was just a really cool sort of experience. And the, the, the reward was $15,000 for my classroom, for our school, and $15,000 personally. He invested $30,000 into 10 teachers. So he awarded over $300,000 in awards. Because teachers are superheroes. Y'all are Earth's mightiest heroes. You deserve <laughs> to be treated like superstars. How did you feel in that moment? No, no, I mean, it was exciting. I mean, like I said, I didn't know that I was being nominated. It was, I was actually nominated by my former mentor resident coach. So as I was going through the residency, my mentor's mentor. So this is someone who was sort of the, the go-to for my mentor teacher and all of our go-to. Uh, she was no longer in that capacity. She's actually serving down in, in corporate office for CPS. And she, she, we've been keeping in touch and she knows the work that I've been doing with my students. And she, she thought it would be, a good idea to nominate me, and lo and behold, they, they chose me. But, yeah, I was elated. I was excited. I was honored. I was just, you know, I was ready. To, I was just happy to shout out my kids. Like, I was just like, yeah, just check out my YouTube page. Check out the performances for the kids. That's all I wanted to see is how awesome my kids are. Let's talk about your kids and some of those performances. What are some of your favorite moments, most impactful moments with your students, especially as an elementary school teacher? We don't hear about this kind of joy from black men educators talking about the babies. Like, I see it in high school. I can see it with somebody, you know, teaching a subject like, I don't know, chemistry or a football coach. But to hear like, oh, no, I'm talking about vocal performance with elementary school students. I'm trying to tell you. Yes, yes, <laughs> yes. We are. I mean, everything stopped right now. I would be absolutely grateful for the experiences that my students have given me and we've been able to share together 
through performance and through growth and through just ex- exploration. Some, we just try things. Like as an F word example, two years ago, the, the current graduates class in 2020, when they were in seventh grade, we were just, you know, and they've been, I've had them since they were in fourth grade, but we've been doing awesome work together for, for years. So they, you know, they, they thought like, Mr. We want to do something big for the Black History Show. Because, I mean, every, every show, every assembly is a performance. The Winter Assembly, Black History, Talent Show, end of the year. I like to have as many showcases as, as we can. So they was like, Mr. Harry, we want to do something super dynamic for the Black History Show. So I was like, all right, let's, let, you know, let's come up with something. So we came up with, collectively, they wanted to recreate Chan, uh, uh, Childish Gambino's This Is America video. They recreated it. And when I say they recreate, I mean, of course, with their own twists and their own thing, but we had to, of course, that's that very, very powerful material, visual. So we had to talk about that and we had to, you know, come to an understanding of what that meant. So we watched the video, we analyzed it together. And as a class, we understood what they were trying to portray and what we wanted to portray to the audience. And they were able to construct their representation of that video. And when I say that it was, Probably one of the most powerful things that I've seen from kids on a stage, it was that powerful. People are still talking about it. Absolutely powerful. And you know, words don't give it justice. Words absolutely don't give it justice. And just in closing, and make a long story short with just that, because I can go on and on about this, about what my, the work my kids do. And our final project for middle school is to create an original song and then record a music video for that song. And, I mean, all the classes do wonderful work. I mean, the lyrics that they come up with are so deep, so, so, so personal, so, so deep. So, you know, but one, one group in particular, and it was this eighth grade class. And this class has just, just been special to me because the work that they've done has just been through the, through the roof. Um, the lyrics that they come up with and some of the, the subject matter that they want to talk about is something they just can't do in other spaces. I'm just blessed to be able to, you know, have shared and for them to trust me enough to be vulnerable, to be willing to share those types of things. And yeah, it's just, it's just been great. It's just been great. So shout out. If you want to check it out, check out my YouTube channel and you will see all the amazing things that they have done throughout the years. Of course we want to check it out. Where, what is your <laughs> YouTube channel so that people can know how to find you? Yeah. So you can just look me up by name, Demetrius Heard, and you will find me. The, you will see a picture of me with my wonderful choir, my four-time AUSL Battle of the Choir first place winning choir. You will see me there on the front page and um, check out all those awesome performances from my kids. We have stage performances that are on there. We have music videos. Um, we have a lot of things. We have uh, virtual graduations, all that kind of good stuff. <laughs> I'm always excited when I hear adults uh, encourage students to develop their own media channels, develop their own podcast, YouTube channel, art, music, songs, poetry, whatever it is, so that you can create this portfolio of work that can you can take with you and that can grow Absolutely. with you. Um, Absolutely. Speaking of taking with you and growing with you, how have you grown since you began your career? As a career changer, you entered the classroom later than someone who came out of college as a declared right. education major. How do you right. think that those years outside of the classroom prepared you to enter the classroom? Absolutely. And how have you grown? Um, yeah, I, I took it very seriously. I, I, I knew that if I was not prepared mentally, physically, psychologically, emotionally, to handle the lives 
of, of the next generation, then I wasn't going to take that plunge. I knew that in my 20s, the only thing I was really concerned about was the things that people are concerned about in their 20s. I just wanted to enjoy that without that sort of sense of responsibility. I wanted to kind of just get some things out of, out of me. So as an educator, when I took that leap, I noticed that my life in terms of just my focus and my, my drive towards personal growth and my drive towards getting closer with God and my drive towards being a better man. And I recently got married, like, you know, bought a house. Like, I, I'm, I'm in a position right now where I understand the importance of stability and peace. So um, I try to embed that and I try to, to encompass that when I'm in front of my students. I try to encompass stability and encompass peace so that no matter what chaos may be going on, that they, when they're in my presence, they're going to have stability and they're going to have peace. That's just one thing that I've that's just been noticeably different personally about my life since I've, since I've taken that leap to education. What advice do you have for first-year educators? Be authentic to who you are as a person. Know why you're doing it. If you have to, if you're one of those, you know, people like me where you got to write things down, write down why you're doing it. Elaborate on why you're doing it. And if you and if you can continue to write, then you're doing the right thing. But if you're if you have writer's block, then you might want to reconsider. So you know, write it down, write the vision, and make it plan and understand why you want to do what it is that you say you want to do. And you know, just trust. Just trust that. If you are doing the right thing, the students will respond to you. If you put in the effort and you just do the right things and have the right motives, yeah, you'll, you'll be fine. But you got to be sensitive to your kids. Understand who your kids are. If you are, if you don't look like them, do your best to understand them and understand why they do what they do and why they say what they say. Be proactive and not reactive. All and all you're getting get an understanding. And that's just one of the things that, you know, we as black educators are blessed to have with our students and blessed to have an understanding. So that's sort of half the battle. So when you have an understanding of our students and you, and you not just understand who they are, but why they are the way they are, and you, you teach them differently, you teach them from a place where they need to be taught from. Hmm, hmm. That's my spiel. <laughs> Thank you for coming on to the show and sharing your story. You spoke about some of the educators that have changed your life, but I will ask you yep. again, are there any black educators that you would like to thank as you reflect on all of your experiences? I'm going to thank your grandfather <laughs> and I'm going to thank your dad and I'm going to thank your music teacher in high school and I'm going to thank all of the black educators you had in elementary school because you mentioned those. Yeah, but are there any absolutely. other educators? Oh, and then the woman who not, so your mentor's mentor, her for looking absolutely. out. So anybody else that you would like to thank who poured into you and kept a song in your heart so that you could yeah. encourage all of the kids to keep singing? All those people, plus people like my mentor, Mr. Barry Johnson, who's been very insightful throughout my life. Of course, my dad, my granddad, Mr. Wilson, Dr. Murray, my first principal, Mrs. Emily Turner, Dr. Curtis Jasper, Dr. Tyrone Dowdell, Dr. Curtis Jackson, all those people, all those Scott Jobs and educators when y'all know who you are, Mr. Wilson, just peace and blessings to all the black educators who, who are making a profound change in the lives of our kids. 
Yes. So thank you, Mr. Hurt, for coming on the show and sharing your story and everything that you've done. It was, it is, and it always will be worth it. So thank you. Thank you, Danielle. I appreciate you so much. Now, are you a singer? Are you a rapper? Like, what do you do? I'm a singer. I'm vocally, I'm classically trained as an opera singer, but, you know, I realized that was just a little bit too too plain (laughs) for my liking. So I currently, I sing on the praise team. I sing at the Victory Cathedral, my pastor, Smokey Norfolk. So, you know, I got to, music got to be on point <laughs> at all times. You know, I come from good stock, but music is my thing. I'm a keyboard player and a vocalist. But yeah, it's, it's music is life. <laughs> if you have a little bit in you, can we just get like a little snippet of a lift every voice and sing or a little snippet of the blood will never lose its power? Shout out to Smokey. You know, just a little something can we get? Lift every voice. See, that's so funny that you say that because that, I think mean, I don't, well, man, my students, we, we, we deliver lift every voice and sing before we begin every music class. We, that's our, that's, that's one of our ways of community building. If we, we participate in the dirty voice thing. Our hands on the heart all together. Because <laughs> that is our anthem. But I'll sing a little bit of that. Let's see. Lift every voice and sing till earth and heavenly ring with the harmony of liberty. Let our rejoicing arise Let it resound loud as rolling feet. Sing a song full of the faith that the dark past has taught us. Sing a song full of the hope that the present has brought us. They sing the Thank you for listening to this episode of Black Educators Matter. Are you ready to share your story? Visit us online at www.blackeducatorsmatter.org to sign up. Remember, make excellence equitable and thank a black teacher today.